Hello, everybody. Uh, my name is Sam. Um, and before I start preaching tonight, I'd like to give a big thanks to our worship team um, who do a fantastic job. And of course, the people who are behind the scenes, Tim, Laura B, Isaac on sound and um, vision and um, yeah, everything else. So yeah, just a big thanks to those guys um, for everything that they do. Um, yeah, like I said, my name is Sam Lamy. Um, I've been coming to this church for about uh, five years or so, um, and I've had the privilege to preach um, a couple of times. Um, but more recently, I've been um, yeah caught up in work. I'm a shift worker, and um, yeah, I haven't had as much opportunity to be around. Um, but I want to thank our Pastor Nick uh, for letting me share tonight. Uh, on a passage of scripture uh, that could not be more relevant for our church, um, our time and our culture. See, we have been looking at Peter's first letter, uh, written by the disciple Peter to early Christians scattered throughout what is now modern day Turkey. Uh, These Christians, they were new to the faith um, and they were surrounded by a society that was at odds with them. Um, And as Peter indicates in chapter 4, which Christy spoke on two weeks ago, these new Christians had been brought out of the reckless, wild living of the surrounding society. And now they were struggling uh, with the great daily challenge of being different, uh, of being active members in their society, but ultimately being at odds with the way society does government, marriage, family, work and so on. And I would venture to say that many of us are in a similar place, uh, navigating that tension between faith and society. Um, A lot of us are young and new to the faith, um, and at that point in life where we are studying or maybe entering the workforce, uh, moving out of home, and we are leaving the nest, so to speak, uh, and coming into contact with the wider world. And sadly, it is a world that does not love us, but demands our devotion. Uh, And as adulthood approaches, uh, we will find ourselves under general life pressures, uh, making decisions about education, uh, debt, finances, careers, marriage, family, meaning, and many other critical matters. Um, But we will also find ourselves under a moral pressure uh, to engage in the reckless living of those around us. Uh, and at the heart of it all, especially for us uh, of the younger generations, there is an ongoing technological revolution. Um, I was reading a book um, preparing for this sermon, um, and as David Kinnaman puts it in his book, You Lost Me, he says that we as young people are digital natives immersed in a glossy pop culture that prefers speed over depth, sex over wholeness, and opinion over truth. And among our generation especially, uh, technological literacy combined with spiritual illiteracy make for a very sad cocktail of social media, fake news, Netflix binges, video game addictions, uh, pornography and hookup culture. Um, And yeah, so the older generations, they're fading away. They were brought up in a um, broken world and we too have been brought up in a broken world. And from what I can see, there is a general crisis of confidence in institutions, uh, including government, workplace, uh, education, marriage, the police. Uh, Just recently, uh, we've seen Australians in the tens of thousands uh, gathering together in capital cities to protest Indigenous deaths in police custody. 
And the thing is, is that the church has not escaped this eye of scrutiny. Uh, And many young people have found the church to be morally lacking. Um, The Barna Group is a Christian research institute, um, and they record trends in the Christian populace. And one of their more recent studies uh, took uh, a sample of young adults with a Christian background, um, aged 18 to 29, um, and asked them to describe their journey with faith. And 61% of them reported that they had dropped out of attending church after going regularly. 58% of them were less active in the church today than compared with age 15. And 32 had gone, 32%, sorry, had gone through a period where they felt like rejecting their parents' faith. And so many young Christians are questioning what their parents, pastors and elders have taught them and declaring, you lost me. And thus, with all the societal pressures and and lack of confidence in church leadership, it is no wonder that young 20-something Christians are dropping out of church attendance and participation. And the problem is not that young Christians have been unchurched or churched more or less than previous generations. The problem is, is that many young Christians are finding that their spiritual energy is fading away as they hit their 20s. And Christians in their 20s are the least likely age group to report believing in and experiencing the presence of the Holy Spirit. And if you are a young Christian, uh, let me be clear that my goal tonight is not to tell you to pick yourself up by your bootstraps and come to church more. And neither do I come against our parents and leaders and elders with a caustic and bitter spirit. Uh, I come with a gentle one because I too am a part of the generation of young Christians. And I too am frequently distracted by societal pressures. And I too share in the disillusionment of the traditional church experience. But the thing is, is we need the kind of steadfast faith that lasts a lifetime and which finds God's grace amidst the pressures of daily life. And this is how Peter sums up his first letter in chapter 5, verses 12. He says, I have written to you, exhorting you and testifying What is the true grace of God? Stand firm in it. And thus, my goal tonight is to encourage whoever is listening to stand firm in the true grace of God. So let's dive into the text. Uh, I've kind of split it into sections, so we'll just tackle section by section. Um, And the first uh, reading comes from 1 Peter 5, verses 1 to 4. And Peter says, he says, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder And a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. And thus, point one, if you're taking notes, is leaders are servants. See, as Australians, young and old, we know what it is like to have failed leaders. Um, So much so that the concept of a leadership spill is typical of Australian politics. And we have become so used to leadership challenge after leadership challenge uh, that between 2010 and 2018, we have had five changes of prime minister. 
um, Kevin Rudd, Julia Gillard, back to Kevin Rudd, uh, then Tony Abbott, Malcolm Turnbull, and finally Scott Morrison. And Australia has such an unstable leadership that one foreign correspondent for the BBC has called Australia the coup capital of the democratic world. And nothing seems more Australian than dragging our politicians through the mud. Um, we've all seen those videos, you know, before COVID, um, CFS volunteers refusing to shake Scott Morrison's hand because he went away on holiday in Hawaii while bushfires were ravaging the East Coast um, and our very own Kangaroo Island and Cudley Creek. Or uh, XPM um, Malcolm Turnbull coming under heavy fire in the media for investing in um, offshore tax havens and saying that parents should just shell out and buy their children houses. Uh, all while we are in the middle of a housing crisis. And the church too uh, is facing problems with failed leadership. Um, and we often see these in the news, you know. Recently, the CEO of a major Christian network was removed from his position uh, due to his abusive leadership style. And Australian megachurches have seen their fair share of controversy uh, surrounding tax-free revenues and lack of financial accountability. And finally, the Australian churches have failed to protect children and other vulnerable people in our society. Um, but it goes more than there. See, Peter, is, Peter lived in a time of failed leadership, excuse me, uh, and he's writing from a time of failed leadership. See, Peter's nation was under the boot of the Roman emperors. They exalted their own deeds, um, and they were known for kind of lording their power over their subjects. And to top it all off, they called themselves the Divi Filius, which means the sons of God. And Peter's religious leaders, the Pharisees and Sadducees, they abused their position for personal gain. And Jesus says in Matthew 23, Woe to you, Pharisees! You shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. Woe to, woe to you, Pharisees! You care more about the gold of the temple than the temple itself. You tithe, but you neglect justice. You neglect mercy. You neglect faithfulness. But get this, Peter himself was a failed leader. In Matthew 16, Jesus gives him the name Peter, which means rock in Greek. And he elects him to church leadership, saying, on this rock, I will build my church. Yet just three chapters later, in Matthew 19, Peter tries to prevent parents from bringing their children to Jesus to be blessed. And he argues again and again with the other disciples over who is the greatest. And finally, after Jesus' arrest, he denies knowing Jesus three times to save himself. So after all his failures, how then can Peter give these instructions to us and say that church leaders should exercise oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering, but by being examples? Well, it all hinges on Peter's witness to the sufferings of Jesus, as he says in verse 1. See, Jesus was a homeless man and a healer who demanded no financial fee. And where Peter rejected the children, Jesus is eager to interact with them. And where Peter argues over his greatness, Jesus teaches him that leaders shouldn't domineer, but become servants. And finally, where Peter denied Jesus to save his life, Jesus laid down his life willingly and eagerly and not for his own gain, 
but so that we and Peter might gain everything. The failed leadership of Peter's time condemned Jesus to die on the cross for committing no crime. And Peter was a witness to Jesus' humble example. Peter was a witness to the true grace of God. And I think Tim Keller puts it quite succinctly, um, and so I'm going to quote him. This is what he says is the true grace of God. He says, We are so bad and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe, yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Christ than we ever dared hope. And Jesus calls himself the good shepherd who lays his life down for his sheep in the book of John. And Peter uses that imagery in these verses, calling Jesus the chief shepherd and instructing church leaders to follow Jesus' example as humble shepherds. Thus, all leaders and elders in our church must become like servants. And Nick's given me permission to say this. And must lead willingly, not for personal gain, and by setting an example. Because this humble servant leadership is an extension of the true grace of God. And we, the members of the congregation, we have a task too. We must hold them accountable to this scripture and to the example that Jesus has set. And so that brings me to point two, if you're taking notes. Servants are leaders. And reading from 1 Peter 5, verses 5 to 7, it says, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. And I want to ask us the question, is our disillusionment with our nation's leaders uh, and with the previous generations, is that partly self-inflicted? And by this I mean, have we we expected too much from them? The truth is, is that our disillusionment is not really ours. It's just a continuation of the past generations. See, most of our leaders were brought up in the post-war era. And research from the Gallup organization that stretches back to the 1930s shows that young adults uh, began to really differ in their outlook from their parents in the post-war era. And it was there that youth culture was born in the 60s and 70s amid student riots, Vietnam War, indigenous civil rights movements, the sexual revolution and finally the Pentecostal movement in the church. And even the phrase, generation gap, was first attested to during this era. But for all the sound and fury of those years, is the world any better or indeed any worse now than what it was before? And for all the sound and fury of our years, will everything work out the way we thought it would? Disillusionment with the past generations is no new thing, especially in the secular world. Um, But we as Christians are no strangers to disillusionment with our pastors and elders. And I want to ask the question, do we create a pedestal too high for them to climb? Many Christians are unable to subject themselves to their church leaders. And they go church hopping 
which is where they go from one church to the next because the teaching doesn't suit or the worship doesn't suit or the people don't suit. And with access to technology, uh, us in the younger generations, we are quick to listen and idolize the words of many international pastors. But we don't have a personal relationship with them. And truthfully, these men and women might as well be figments of our imagination. Because God has entrusted us here and now to the pastors and elders of Hills Baptist. And indeed, he has entrusted them to us. So we as young Christians are to have no part in this disillusionment. Because someday we who are young Christians will become the ones who are old. And if we want to leave a good legacy, it cannot be founded on disillusionment and bitterness towards our church leaders. Rather, it must be founded on humility and on the true grace of God. And this is where Peter comes in. In verse 5, he encourages us to subject ourselves to our church leaders. And you might be asking me, Sam, how can I trust someone else to care for me when I know they'll make mistakes? How can I subject myself to my church leaders? And I would answer that question by saying, when Jesus died on the cross for our sins, we weren't perfect. We weren't even good. We were bad. As the all-powerful, almighty God, Jesus didn't have to die on the cross, but he did. And God continues to this day to use people who are imperfect for his good and his wonderful will. And we can see this in the story of Peter. See, Jesus names him and elects him as the leader of the church, despite Peter's imperfection. And at the Last Supper, Jesus predicts that Peter will deny him, saying, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And guess what? Peter denies Jesus three times. But after Jesus dies and rises again, he doesn't condemn Peter. He doesn't abandon him like Peter abandoned him. No, he has breakfast with him on the beach and he restores him to the ministry despite his imperfections, saying, Peter, feed my sheep. Peter, feed my sheep. Peter, feed my sheep. If we abandon our church leaders when they make mistakes, and we know they will, then we risk missing out on all the good that God will do through them for our church and our community. But if we stay with them, despite their imperfections, if we help them to repent when they sin and help them to make amends when they stuff up, then we actually begin to show them the true grace of God. And standing firm in God's grace doesn't mean just receiving it for ourselves. It means extending that same grace across the divide between shepherd and sheep, leaders and the led, and elders and the youngers. And Nick has allowed, um, allowed me to refer to him directly here, so I will. Um, see, Nick hasn't been our pastor for a very long time, um, and he will make mistakes. But when he does, let's help him make amends. And when he repents, let's forgive him. And when he needs our help, let's hop in and help him. He can't do it alone. And um, just 
practically speaking, um, there will be plenty of opportunity to serve as COVID restrictions ease. Um, and Nick is going to have rosters to fill. So put your hand up, get involved with coffee, uh, get involved with worship, um, sound or projector. Isaac's pointing to the sound. He needs people. <laughs> uh, yeah, so there's going to be plenty of opportunities to serve. And finally, we come to the third point tonight, uh, which is standing firm. And we're going to be reading from 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7 to 11. It says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. And I just want to say, part of our power to give grace lies in receiving the true grace of God. But the other part lies in knowing that God will always take care of us. And like I said before, who can know if the world we live in now is better or worse than what it was before? And likewise, who knows where our world is going? But this we can be sure of, that God cares for us, as Peter says in verse 7. We don't need to hold on to any disillusionment with the past, nor any anxieties for the future. See, God has ordained all things and nothing will come to pass that can tear us away from his true grace. But humbling ourselves is absolutely necessary. See, those who are proud just try to shoulder everything when they are faced with the, the pressures of life. And they try to prove how strong and how great they are. And they refuse to be comforted by God and by others. And just as it says, it says, God opposes the proud, so too also do the proud oppose God. And they refuse to be subject to the shepherds, and by extension, Jesus, the chief shepherd himself. See, Peter has been using the imagery of the sheepfold all throughout these verses tonight. He says that the church is like a sheepfold, which is being looked after by shepherds. And he calls the devil a prowling lion looking for someone to devour in verse 8. Sheep flock together because there is safety in numbers and because the shepherds feed them. And we flock together as the church for the very same reasons. But the proud are like sheep who stray. And they have no one to look after them. Not even the chief shepherd. And let me ask you this. If the proud are out there all by themselves, like stray sheep, and they encounter the devil who is like a prowling lion, how will they stand any chance against him? And the truth is, is that they won't. They will be devoured. This is Peter's point when he says we must resist the devil 
knowing that the same trials are being experienced by our siblings throughout the world. It's about facing our insecurities, our worries, the problems and pressures of life and saying there is no way I can do it all alone. I need God to help me. I need my pastors and my elders. I need my church community. And at the start, I talked about the dropout problem. Is that you? Is it because you feel like church leaders have failed you? Is it because you struggle to submit? And you might be listening to me right now and saying, Sam, how can I possibly trust someone else to take care of me? As Christians, we have a unique power. We can actually give up on our rights, on pursuing our rights to pursue the rights of others. As Peter says, he is a witness to the sufferings of Jesus. But he says that he is also a partaker in the glory to come. Jesus loves you. Jesus died for you. And Jesus is coming back. And he is coming to restore the world. He is coming to wipe away our tears. And he is coming to do away with all death, mourning and crying. He is coming to bring us a perfect world. Therefore, we can throw away all our worries to him. Knowing that in this life and in the next life, he will always give us what we need. And like it says, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen and establish you. To him be the power and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. And just to finish up, I'd like to pray um, just before we jump back into worship. Dear Lord Jesus, I thank you, Father, that you um, have called us, Lord, and that you have um, called us to receive the eternal glory of Christ. I thank you, Lord Jesus, that you will establish us and strengthen us when we need it. Lord, I, I just pray for all the young people and the old people in our church, Lord. I pray, Father, that you would, uh, yeah, just heal the kind of generational gap between us, Lord, um, that we would love one another, Father, um, that we would be submissive to our elders and our leaders, Lord, um, and that, yeah, Father, you would just keep working in our hearts um, and just transform our community into a community that loves each other and which is humble and which stands in the true grace of God. And I just pray these things in your precious name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from Hills Baptist Church. To find out more or to hear other great content, find us at hillsbaptist.com or on your podcast app. 